Welcome back to Black Girl Watching, where we break down your favorite films and TV shows. I'm Brooke Obi, film critic, writer, editor, and screenwriter. And I'm Brittany Danielle. I'm a writer, editor, and cultural critic who loves, loves, loves reading and watching Black art. And today we are here to talk about the season one finale of Lovecraft Country. We made it back to Artem and to the end of this season. Um, and we're going to talk about it. I'm excited. Yes. So if you want to join us in the conversation, follow us on social media, use the hashtag Black Girl Watching to join in and tell us how you felt about this finale. What are you thinking about what might be for season two? Tweet us at BLKGRL watching and share all your thoughts and ask what questions you still might have after this finale and what you hope a season two might bring. Yes. And today we have another very, very, very special guest, a friend to the show. We have Demetria L. Lucas. And as you know, Demetria is an award-winning author, journalist, media personality. She's also the author of A Bell in Brooklyn, Don't Waste Your Pretty, and she is the host of the Ratchet and Respectable podcast. So welcome to Black Girl Watching, Demetria. Thank you so much. Hi, Brooke. Hi, Brittany. Hi, we're so happy to have you here. And so for everybody else that's joining us on this podcast, please be aware we are about to get all into the season finale. And we're going to talk about every other episode that led up to this finale. So there are spoilers ahead. If you don't want any spoilers, pause this podcast, go finish watching the show, and then come back so you can enjoy the conversation fully. Yes, let's get into it. Uh, we're doing things slightly different today. We're not going to do like the full scene by scene recap. We're going to kind of just jump into a somewhat brief synopsis of this episode and then get everybody's reactions to it. Brooke, do you want to read it or do you want me to take it? Uh, sure. So in this episode, just briefly, Tick and Letty head to the ancestral plane. Of course, they're trying to heal Diana. Um, she's been cursed and she's been turned into a pickaninny. And they've opened the book of names and they've gone to, and that has led them to the ancestral plane. They connect with Hannah, the original ancestor, and Hattie, who was the woman who burnt up in the fire with Letty in episode nine, rewind 1921, and then Dora, who is Tick's mother. And so they all connect in the ancestral plane. And these three ancestors teach Letty and Tick how to use the book of names correctly, how to cast these spells that they need to cast. And they also come together and they do end up saving Dee, except for her arm. Her arm is still in really bad shape and she wakes up pretty horrified about it. Meanwhile, Tick learns that he is going to have to sacrifice himself in order to save his family. But through this sacrifice, Hannah tells him essentially that he'll be able to strip Christina of her power if they can bind his body to Titus's body and Christina's body. And so the ancestors help Tick and Letty trap Titus Braithwaite. Tick cuts out a piece of his liver, and then they devise a plan to head to Artem. So again, the title of this episode is Full Circle. So just like in, was it episode two? Uh, we see Samuel Braithwaite cut out a piece of his liver and feed it to everybody. So now we have Tick cutting out Titus's liver. And they're going back to Artem, which is where the show began. So Tick does a mea culpa with Gia, who happens to still stick around. Um, and so she decides to come and join with them as well. Um, Ruby, Hippolyta, Diana, or Ruby in quotation marks, Hippolyta, Diana, and Montrose all go down to Artem to battle Christina. And then she hits the fan because in Artem, things do not go according to plan. We learn that Christina has sadly killed Ruby, which is what I've been proposing all along, and inhabited her body. She gets into a fight with Letty. She pushes Letty out the window. The villagers attack the Freeman and Freeman adjacent clan. And, and Tick walks straight up into a trap and shit goes down. Demetrius, since you are our guest, what was your first reaction to this episode? My first reaction to the episode was, huh? Like, I... And I do this for every episode, so it's not just particular to this one. Um, I'm 
new to the genre of horror. I'm not really into sci-fi except for Game of Thrones. Um, so usually when I watch an episode, I have to like watch it and then I have to go into this Lovecraft group that I'm in on Facebook, which has like the smartest people ever. And between like the 12,000 of us, we figure out what was going on. Then I listen to the podcast. Then I watch it again. And then I'm like, oh, okay. I kind of get it. Um, even after the second watching though, I, I'm still kind of like, huh? Cause there were a lot of things that happened and I'm not really sure how they were all connected or how they happened. In particular, I'm thinking about like D and this, I guess, is it a bionic arm? Is that what we're calling it? I don't, I don't know how to describe the arm. Like, so the new arm that comes at the end, I was like, where did this come from? Like, how did this happen? Like, I feel like there's a whole backstory missing, like a scene was cut and, and I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's my understanding of the whole episode was kind of like, I don't know. Right, right. Brooke, what were your reactions? My first reaction, I think, was like Demetria's in the sense that I have the same one every time. And I'm back to why, honestly. Um, why did this happen to Diana? Um, what am I supposed to take away from her turning into a murderer? Yeah. I don't understand it. Um, yeah, she is. Uh, I, I don't know. I was recently listening to Alice Wong has a fantastic podcast um, called Disability Visibility. And she actually had an episode on cyborgs and what it means to be a cyborg and all of that. And so I think what is happening here with Diana is that she is a cyborg now, um, that she has this bionic arm. Um, but to use that arm to murder Christina, who she doesn't know, and I'm not even quite sure if she knows that Christina is responsible for Ruby and Tick's death at this point, because she's had no contact from what I can see. Um, she was out in the woods with Tick's Shuggath, who saved her life. But I don't know how much time has passed. Um, I don't know why she would even know anything about Christina other than the fact that like Christina was the one that temporarily saved her life in episode nine. So I, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand why this happened to her. And I, I just have a very difficult time seeing something like all the horrific things that happened to Diana happen to a light skinned little girl. Like I just, I can't imagine them turning a light skinned little girl into a pickaninny. I can't imagine her becoming a murderer. I, I like, I just, I don't understand why that is the last image that we're left with. And I don't understand how I'm supposed to feel about that. Is Diana, like, the curse that was put on her, did it make her evil? Like, so that maybe they removed one curse, but they didn't remove all of the curses, or they didn't fully remove the curse? Because I didn't think anything about the character that was shown thus far. She seemed like a very sweet 10, 11, 12-year-old girl, and now she's, like, a murderer. I didn't, I didn't get how we got from what we've known Diana to be for the last nine episodes to I'm going to kill you as the final shot of the show. Right. Right. Me either. The only thing that I could think of is that, you know, uh, Misha has been very clear even before the season started. Like this is not a limited series in the way that say Watchmen was like Watchmen was always for the most part going to be a one and done series, at least for Damon Lindelof. Right. Like he only wanted to tell this story and then he was done. Misha has been pretty clear about wanting a season two. And then when we talked to Ioma, who's one of the writers on the show, she also said they've talked about you know, where they can take the story in the future. So the thing that us leaving with Diana makes me think that if there is a season two, maybe it might center around Diana and Hippolyta um, in some form or fashion. Otherwise, yeah, I, I also don't know why that's the last scene. And I also don't the first time I saw it, and even the, the second time, she comes to Christina and says, you still haven't learned. Like, what is Christina supposed to be learning? And what does Diana know about what Christina is supposed to be learning? You know what I mean? Like, I guess she still hasn't learned that she no longer has magic, that Black people have magic now. We're literally magic now. Maybe that's it. But I didn't quite get that as the final scene of the show either. Um, going back to my reaction, I just want to say my predictions were right. I think on the last episode, I predicted that Tick and Christina would probably both die and booyah, they both died. Um, I also wasn't feeling any type of way about Ruby dying because I've been over Ruby since 
she became a white woman and was like super happy with it. So <laughs> love, love the actress, love how gorgeous she is and how talented she is. But the character, ooh, I'm not, I'm not sad to see her go. I know, Brooke, in the last episode, we were talking about you hoped, or, or maybe in, I think it was episode eight, you hoped that you know, all of these people would come together and team up, including Gia. And we do see this team up of marginalized people that you were kind of hoping for. I know it's probably not the way that you would have would have preferred, but Gia does have a role to play and she plays it. Um, my question is just like, what happens next? Like, she still hasn't taken her 100th soul, so, like, does she still have to go out? Is she still a cameo? No, she killed Christina. Oh, she didn't kill either one of them. She didn't kill Christina. She didn't kill anybody. She just brought them together. D kills Christina. Yeah. So, like, does she still get to be a Camille or does she get to be free? Because Tick tells her when they have their little come to Jesus meeting, like, you know, I don't believe that you're this monster. I'm not a monster. We're going to win. And at that point, he probably knew he had to die because he tells his mom, like, I don't want to die. And she's just like, it's okay, baby. You still gonna die, though. <laughs> it's for the greater good. You must save the family, but you're going to die. Right. You're going to die. Um, also, the whites... So far, all the brave whites, the whites have been vanquished and I'm here for it. Black people are literally magic. And my other reaction was, I don't want Dee to be a killer. She's too young. She this She's not about that life. I'm not here for Dee being a killer. At all. It really, it just doesn't make any sense either because this could have been the opportunity for Gia to free herself by killing somebody who deserved to die. and. They chose to do something else. And this was not the way. I mean, I think, too, they could have come to this conclusion back in episode eight. Like, it didn't have to be as ugly as it was. Um, I think that's that's really disappointing for me. Like, it didn't, Tick never had to be. I understand. And then again, a lot of this stuff came through epi- exposition in this episode, which I really, really don't like. Like, I don't like if I'm in episode 10 and it's the finale and I still have to learn a bunch of stuff through exposition because it wasn't set up throughout the series. Um, So that was annoying, but, you know, I do feel like it could have been this really beautiful thing. Like it could have been this beautiful thing of all these different people teaming up to fight white supremacy together. Um, And it was kind of just like, Hey, I need help. Like, so can you come and save me rather than being able to see how it benefits everyone. Last week I was really angry and that's why I was so glad that we had Dr. Imani on to like help process those feelings. But like this week, I I don't feel angry. I just, I feel just kind of deflated a little bit. I don't know if that's dramatic, but yeah. I just feel maybe a little bit, (laughs) but go ahead. Go ahead, Demetria. No, I just feel like very confused because, okay. So Jiha pops up and then Tick goes to see her and they have this come to Jesus moment. But was there always a plan that she was going to connect people no. in some way? No. So otherwise, why was she there? Like, why did she get invited on the road Hello. trip? Like, it functioned in the end. Like, oh, by the way, we happen to have like this connector, Gion here. Like, let's do this because our, our original plan failed. But otherwise, I'm like, well, what was her point on the trip? Like, there was a lot of people in that car. Every Everybody. It was, I mean, I know Woody's a big car, but like everybody was in the car. They were doing that whole sing along, which was like a really like cute family moment. But I was like, but why is she here? Like, and there's no tension. Like, how did you clean up the tension between Jiha and Letty? I'm like, oh, you know, so like my ex that I didn't tell you about that flew over here from Korea because I kept calling her long distance and she thought there might be something there. She going to come on this ride with us. Like, huh? Yeah, there are a lot of moments um, throughout the series. Um, Were there any places that you felt provided the proper clarity or the proper... um, conclusion to the season in this episode no but i enjoyed the car scene (laughs) that was a good scene i I like the whole 
there was a good scene. The whole like the all the all the gangs all here. We're singing along to this song and we're all happy. Montrose at first looks like shoot me now, but then he joins in. I'm like, oh, a good family moment. I kept waiting for something to happen. I think in any other show they would have used that opportunity for like something to pop out of the woods or the car to break down or, or something like that. But I actually let like that they let that continue and it was just like a feel good moment. And that's when I was kind of like, oh, Somebody about to die. Like, Tick, even though he's saying, is like, oh, I'm going to live and it's going to be great. I'm like, nah, Tick about to die. This is sad. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that was, I think that was at least an acknowledgement um, that they needed this moment um, by the writers, which I appreciated. And that the audience may have needed this moment as well. This moment of them having joy and being together as a family, even though it's all a sham, even though, because Ruby is not really Ruby. And even though, you know, it's all about to fall apart. Um, but yeah, I, th- I thought it was necessary to like, they sang the whole song and there is one point too, where like, it's some like lovey dovey lyric. I can't remember the lyrics, but like Tick turns around and he's like singing to Gia. I'm like, okay. And then he turns around and he like corrects it or whatever. And he's like back in Letty's face with the rest of it. But I was just like, you know, I guess, I, I don't know. You've been off Tick since, uh, probably episode four, Brooke, I would say you've been off take since episode four. And it reminded me of Demetria had a post recently on her Instagram that it's so funny. I saw somebody had reshared it on Twitter. So shout out for you, Demetria. People are resharing your stuff outside of it being like, mm, y'all agree with this, but it was about how tick is not the good guy that we, you know, we get distracted. We get distracted by the shoulders. We get distracted by the muscles. Uh, he's a very nice person to look at. But if we go through um, <laughs> the actions of the show, Tick is not the hero that we think he may be. Well, let me clean that up. So I'm in this Lovecraft group that I just talked about earlier. It's like 12,000 people, and they throw out all sorts of different ideas about the show. So one of them was, why doesn't Ruby like Tick? And a couple comments in, this woman says, well, I think uh, Ruby is jealous because Letty has a good man. And a commenter popped in and was like, good man where? And she, in a series of posts, makes this list of like all of Tick's shortcomings, starting with like, you know, he's living up in Letty's house. Um, he's unemployed. He's, you know, he's calling this woman long distance who then pops up. It's some, hey, Letty, it's me, Gian, um, comes into town. Um, what else was there? He's selfish. He's got daddy issues. He's got anger issues. He's got Letty pregnant. He hasn't even taken her on a date. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and I was just kind of like, well, and then some other people were like, well, you know, he does protect Letty. Like, you know, love, protection is a form of love. And the woman, same woman pointed out, and she was like, yeah, like, he usually protects her after he, like, gets her into some drama. Like, she's she's along for this journey of, like, him and his magic. And it started with trying to, like, find his father. But she's, you know, been with him for this wild ride. But she gets, I guess, in trouble or almost in trouble every episode. So it was kind of like, you know, is this a good man? So that's where the dialogue stemmed from. Like I sort of summarized what this woman was saying and was like, you know, does she have a point? And then, you know, it goes viral on Instagram and Facebook. And I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. I thought, you know, we just have a quick discussion and move on. But people argued about that for like two whole days. Because I think it's just really interesting the way that we define what is a good man in general. I mean, I, I always think back to uh, waiting to exhale and Whitney Houston's mother, she was like, he's a good man, Savannah. And he was clearly married and like, you know, it's just like, okay, if he has a job and Tick didn't even meet the bare minimums. Like he was just like handy around the house and like looked nice. And he reads, he reads. We never saw him fix anything though. So was he handy? He fixed the boiler. We saw him fix the boiler in episode three. He fixed the boiler. Shout out to that. He made her a dark room. He made her a dark room in episode three as well. That's good. That's good Um, behavior. He got got baptized for her, I guess. Does that count as good? Yeah, uh, that count that counts as effort of some sort effort. because he was just like he don't really believe in it, which is the other other question I had because in the book Letty is much more religious than Show Letty. Show Letty, um, she does have that moment where she goes to church in episode three, but she says like she goes because she's been trying to feel something because 
she was killed in episode two and brought back to life. And ever since then, uh, well, from episode two to three, she says she hasn't been able to feel things. And that's why she was going to church. And then in one of the previous episodes, we see her praying hardcore, hardcore, like old, old grandmama prayers on Tick's behalf, like to protect him and to save him. And that's when she meets with Christina um, who gives Letty invulnerability. Um, so I'm hoping if if there is a season two, I hope it really centers the women and girls. Like I hope it centers Hippolyta. I hope it centers Diana. Um, because for so much of this season, Letty was so willing to sacrifice herself on the altar of protecting Tick. In a way that it was annoying. It was annoying, but like I also didn't understand. Like their relationship was so fast. Like, okay, they go to Artem, she dies. They haven't seen each other before that for years and years and years. And so I I was not really buying their super fast, like, oh my god, I love you. So we get that scene at the end of the finale. We get the scene at the end of the finale where she's again. Shout out to Journey. She's a track star. She's running through the woods after, you know, waking up from being pushed down out of this tower. And she runs to him. And instead of starting with the spells right away, she's just kind of staring at him. She's looking at him. Christina has cut, like, the hell out of his arm where... He was, he was, it was like a shower. He was leaking. Yes, like, it was like a like shower like of blood. A dam, she was like a bathing. Dam situation. And she was bathing in it. Oh. She was bathing in his blood. Like, so I knew he was up out of there unless somebody could get him some magic right fast. And so instead of, you know, kicking in with the spells right away, which I probably would have done, I guess. She, they have this moment. She tells him that she loves him. Has Tick ever told Letty he loves her? Because he, he couldn't do it in that moment because he was he was up out of there almost. I think he did. I think when Gia came, he did. But again, he was under duress. So, you know. I kind of feel like the way Letty acts towards Tick is, can be, I don't want to say all, it's some, just to be clear. But some Black women in relationships, some women, I don't want to just put that on Black people, but some women in relationships, like mm-hmm. we meet someone and we're just like, oh, well, you know, he's a good man. And then you just like fall head over heels and and do everything and anything for this relationship. And there's nothing of substance there yet. Is she wasting her pretty, Demetria? Is that what's happening? (laughs) I don't know if I'll say she's wasting her pretty. Like, you know, the end result is magic is restored to black people. So it all goes to a, you know, a good end. But just, you know, if they hadn't got the magic and Tick, you know, he still seems to have a thing for Gion. Like, ah, there's a little... There's a little waste going on, maybe. But one of the things I really did appreciate, just kind of connected to what you guys were just talking about, was that when they do go to the ancestral plane, right? Hattie and Letty are, you know, talking. And Hattie's like, look, she she basically hits him with the Sansa Stark. Like, he's gone, okay? You need to learn <laughs> this magic for yourself and your child. Like, Tick is gone. She did him like Sansa did Rickon. And was like, forget about him, learn it. And apparently they did like some speed learning because Letty just pops out, just dropping bars of of spells <laughs> everywhere, speaking in tongues, speaking in clicks. I was like, okay, this seems like a a lot of different mishmash of stuff because the clicking reminded me a lot of certain African languages that we didn't encounter previously when Samuel and when Christina and even when when Tick previously was spitting books of Adam lyrics at us. I really appreciated Hattie kind of getting Letty's mind right and being like, I know you want to save him, but you also need to save yourself and you also need to save your child. So let, what we're going to do over here is pump as much energy and as much learning about this book into you so you can save yourself. Um, hopefully he'll make it. And even if he don't, you know what to do. I really appreciated that. Exactly. I feel like that's that's very like old black woman advice. 
Like grandma advice is always like, yo, you got to look out for yourself. You need to have a little side money. You need to make sure you can never have more kids than you can afford on your own. Like it's very old school black woman advice. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciated in that scene too, that, you know, Hattie did get to come back to life because it was really horrific actually watching her burn up in the last episode. So I'm really glad that there was more to her story and to her character than that pretty horrific image. But I do want to say, I'm going back to um, Demetria, your point about the, as long as black people have magic, then like everything was kind of worth it. I have a problem with the black people having, I like how it works. Like Letty says at the end to Christina, white people, uh, no white people can use magic anymore. Like Letty is half white, right? Like Tick had white in him, obviously, which is how he was able to use why, why his blood was so important in the first place. Like any of us in America, you know, any black descendants of enslaved people, we're going to go through our ancestry and we're going to find, you know, European ethnicity in there. So like I do, I'm wondering how this is supposed to work because race is not based in the blood, you know, it's race is just how you look. It's your phenotype, you know, it's not your genotype. So I'm wondering for one, what that does to the discussion about race and how race operates. Like, to, to say that it's, you know, it's blood related when it's obviously not um, considering the way that Tick looks and the way that he experienced the world as a black man, even having white ancestry. So that part was a little bit frustrating, but beyond that as well, this is why it was so important to not kill Yahima (laughs) because Titus went to her land and took the language of Adam and all this knowledge of magic from her people. So I feel like it's the same thing as like black Americans asking for 40 acres and a mule on stolen land. Like, no, it doesn't belong to us now. Like, yes, we should get reparations for the harm that was caused by white supremacy, but like taking stuff that doesn't belong to us, that's not some sort of victory, you know? And that's why it was so important for me that Yahima live (laughs) and be a part of this process. Um, and that there was a coming together of all of these marginalized people. Like if they had said that it had, like they had, he, he went to like some black rooted place and stole the magic from black people. I think that would have made more sense. And that would have been more of a full circle moment for me. But for like, he went to this indigenous, um, was it South America? Where did, where did he go? I don't remember where Gehima was from. No, I think it was the Caribbean. I don't know. I feel like I would feel better about the magic being in the hands of the marginalized people if it had been restored to the people that the white people stole from in the first place. I don't know what I'm what I'm supposed to take from Letty saying, you know, no white people can do magic because that would prevent Letty and that would prevent their child because tick. Letty's not white, though. Well, but she her, her dad was half white. Right. Like that was the or her. But her mom was black. But she has white ancestry. So that's why, like, I don't I don't understand how it's supposed to work. Well, Christina's like white, white. But Letty's like, you know, <laughs> at best, like white and black. So there's like there's black in there. So like maybe the black part of her can do the magic. But then there's a whole lot of white people who have black ancestry. So maybe they can do like, you know, 10 or 20 percent magic, but they're not full white. So they can't do all magic. <laughs> I think they're rolling with the like the like the if you experience this world as a black person i don't think they're going to your you know 23 and me or your africa ancestry to be like oh you're 60% <laughs> black so you only get 60% of this magic whatever percentage letty was letty was living as a black woman um a black woman with a certain amount of privilege because she was lighter skinned. Um, But definitely she was living as a black woman and working, you know, civil rights causes and ending up in jail because she's, you know, protesting and she's on the South side. Like Letty is not a white woman. She's not white Ruby. And all her neighbors thought she was black. And all her neighbors 
knew she was black. And so I think those are the rules that we're operating. I don't think it's like, oh, you have some white ancestry, so you don't have access to this magic. But But I do agree that had Titus Braithwaite initially stolen this magic from black people to give it back to black people would be a full circle moment um, versus stealing it from, you know, indigenous people. And then now it's black people's turn to have it. Um, And maybe in... (laughs) season two they go on another indiana jones type of venture and they you know reconnect with um indigenous people perhaps to to restore the magic to them who knows but i think like those are i I don't think they're again quibbling about percentages of whiteness or blackness in people's blood i would love to see that in season two like, you know, Hippolyta's like, oh, let's hop in the, the portal and let's go on this journey and, like, let's go find the indigenous people and t- we got this magic from originally and, you know, give it back or sh- ask them to share it at least. Yeah, I, I think that would be, I think, you know, because my whole, my whole thing <laughs> has always been, like, let's get all the marginalized people in solidarity against white supremacy because that's literally the only way that we win. Like, we are a majority of the people on the planet. So if we are in solidarity with each other, if we are looking at what's happening in Nigeria right now and we are ending SARS and ending SWAT and, you know, fighting for fighting against police brutality that's happening in Nigeria right now and they're fighting against police brutality that's happening in America right now and we're seeing everything that's happening and how all of our struggles are connected, then that's how we win. Like, that's how we win. And so... I do. I don't know. I feel like it was it was a missed opportunity because this feels very individual. You know, it feels like one individual family's like triumph, which, you know, that can be fine if it was a more insular story. You know, like if all of these other consequences didn't have if there weren't orders of the ancient dawn lodges all over the country, you know, that were operating in this way. I feel like it would it would be okay if we're just telling the story of an, how an individual family is doing and what consequences happen to this individual family. But when you're bringing in all, when you're bringing in imperialism and colonialism, like those are things that were introduced because of Titus Braithwaite and his activities, you know? And so if you're going to do that and you're going to go to all these different places and see how this person and this family has impacted and white supremacy in general impacts all of these different facets of life, then I think you have to have a higher stakes kind of ending, right? That is more about all of these marginalized people coming together to defeat it. So then it it does become, it does feel like our victory even in the audience and not so much like, and I don't even think that the family feels victorious after this. Like they lost Tick. I mean, Diana's a murderer. Uh, I mean, what is Ruby? Ruby's dead. It's just like, what's the victory? Yeah. And this is one of the things that I was always kind of, um, as we went on this journey, I was like, okay, the stakes never felt high enough for me because at the end of the day, Christina was the villain, right? I don't care what those memes be like. The actual villain is Montrose. No, the actual villain is Christina. But her goal was so small it wasn't like christina's goal was to get immortality to rule the world which okay then we got to take her out because she can't rule the world because she's going to be a dictator who's immortal and she's gonna you know try to enact her will on everybody but from what she told us her goal was to get immortality to experience life and i'm like sis you're a rich white woman you have the money you have the means go experience life you don't need Tick's blood. You don't need to kill Tick. You don't need to do magic to do to experience the world. Um, you can already do that as a, a privileged white woman. So like it, it always felt very, very small to me that her entire goal was not something larger than herself. And so that meant that for me, at least, like they they didn't have to go on this journey to do all of these things because if Christina never found the book or the papers or whatever, which is all the things like taking Letty and Matros found and then pretty much gave to her, if they didn't go and find those things, she would still just be a woman in search of those things. You know what I mean? Like 
I don't know. I hope that if they do get a season two, like the stakes are a little bit higher. Somebody is threatening the world. Maybe, you know, it is more of an action adventure like Demetrius suggested to return the magic to its proper um, owners. And also if black people have magic now, just because Letty knows all of these spells, is she going to open like a black magic school or something? Because black people don't have magic. The Freemans have magic. So I think I'm always like, what are the logistics? Just like when Ruby was transforming all over the South Side, I'm like, is she just leaving blood and guts everywhere or <laughs> or what? And so what are the logistics of giving this, this knowledge to Black people? Because you know you can't trust all yeah. of us. Because there, there's always somebody who's going to drop drop a dime to the whites and be like, hey, dog, this this is the spell. So what what are the logistics of ensuring that black people in mass have magic and not just the Freemans? Yeah, we we don't know. We don't know. All skin folk ain't kin folk. We can't everybody can't have access to the same things. Like, so I mean, I do think that will be a challenge in, in season two to figure out like how to distribute that magic. But you know, what are the rules? I kind of feel like this is the the Wakanda problem. It was kind of like you have this vibranium and you're out here thriving in this this uh, country that you've created, but you're not helping the other black people around the world who could benefit from that, even though they're also black, but not Wakanda. Good question. So and I want to know, Demetria, from your from your group, like what what I would love to know more about what those conversations are like. Is there space in that in that chat that you have like or there to be criticism of the show? Or is it more just about like analysis? Because some people have been really, really upset when you start to like critique the show. So what's your experience been? Um, so in the group, I would say that overall, it's analysis of the show. I mean, they'll pick up on the smallest of things and it'll be like a, a, a post of or a thread of like, I don't know, 900, 1000 comments. Um, there's not a lot of room for criticism. There was a piece I don't remember the website that they posted yesterday and um, just based off the headline, like it was saying something, there was, it was a comparison, I think, between Lovecraft Country and Good Lord Bird. So they were comparing those two shows and the author of the piece liked the other show better. And it had significant complaints, I would say, about um, a lot of the exposition, because you talked about that, um, Brooke. But they were like, Lovecraft is full of a bunch of exposition and not a lot of action. And the big criticism was... Last episode, in the middle of, of the Tulsa massacre, Montrose is, is having this long exposition in the alley. And the author was saying, you know, it was great acting, but did we really need this here? And could we have put this somewhere else so that we can just focus on the action when the action comes? And it was a criticism that he had of the show in general. So I would say that 98% of the readers in that group were like, no, F that. Um, no, if they don't love Lovecraft, they just don't get it. Like they're just not, you know, black nerds. They just, it, it's just, it was, they weren't very receptive to anything, but I love this show and let's just analyze, um, the smallest details of it. It's a fan group. Right. Right. And I'm wondering too, like I, if there is space to be both a fan and a critic, or if being a fan means die hard, you know, can't receive anything like love it or leave it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of kind of behavior. Well, I think that we're all fans of the show, right. even though we don't absolutely love everything about it. Um, like I would point out that, you know, there's an entire podcast that you have dedicated to the show. You don't do that for something that you hate. Exactly. Like you've invested in it. You're watching episodes multiple times. You're taking notes, um, you know, doing these conversations. So yeah, definitely fans, but I definitely think there's room to say, hey, this is something that I enjoy. Um, but these are also things that I think could have been done better or done differently or, you know, where does it go from here? I think that's totally fandom. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. Speaking of being fans of the show, let's take a look back. Um, maybe what are some of your favorite moments of the season, favorite episodes of the season? Uh, we'll start with Demetria because I know... Brooke's favorite episode is three. <laughs> We've talked about it a lot. Uh, but Demetria, do you have like a favorite episode or a favorite moment of the show? Hands down, my favorite episode um, was Hippolyta. I am mm. like just the idea of, of this black woman going into, I guess, a different realm. I thought it was space initially, but going into this different realm and then 
you know, being able to declare herself whatever she wants to be and going through these different places in time. Um, I loved it. And I will say that I watched it and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like I, I watched um, Hippolyta's speech on the edge of, of the bed with George about how she played small. And then that conversation about George first denying it and then acknowledging it. Very often when I've, I've had conversations with, with people, usually lovers, to say that, you know, like I'm not feeling like my full self here. Like I feel like I'm, I'm squashed. I'm limited. You know, it's always like, oh, you're just upset about something or, oh, you'll get over it or, oh, you're overreacting or, oh. But when George acknowledged like, you know what? Yes, I did this so I could go do my adventures. So you, we could have a family, a family unit. Um, and I'm sorry. And then they went off together in, in this new understanding of their relationship. And, you know, she's exploring and he's taking her notes. And I thought that was amazing. Um, but I watched that episode and I went in the kitchen because um, I was at home at the time. And I was telling my mom about this woman who goes in back in time and she's dancing with Josephine Baker. And there's like this this woman with an afro who's like an android goddess. And then, you know, the woman goes and she's learning how to fight. And then she goes to her husband and then she's off in space. And I was telling my mom, I was like, you really got to watch this. And she was like, well, I want to watch a white woman do that. And like. I appreciated the comment because she didn't wasn't familiar with the show I was talking about. So, but her assumption was that to see a woman doing these things, it wasn't a black woman. And when I was like, "No, mommy, like, no, she's black," and she was like, "She's black," and she was like, "Well, put that on and let me watch it." And when my mom was watching Hippolyta like do all these things, like I realized like how revolutionary in, in many ways that this show is. My mom had never seen anything like that. She'd never seen black women just being able to just be human. You know, there's, we're always trapped in these certain roles and these certain conditions and we're limited in like the worlds that we explore. But in this instance, no. And my mom was watching the show. She looked like Hippolyta when she first, like the ornery first lights up. And she's got that look of glee and amazement on her face. But that's how my mom was watching that episode, like just to see a black woman do all of these amazing, interesting, out of the box things. And there's no limit to it. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. And that's, I'm so glad you had that experience, too. I've, I watched every episode with my mom as well. And that is something. Um, yeah. I, I also have never had anybody actually acknowledge or apologize um, for the ways that they contributed to my shrinking. So to see George do that, that was, um, and his, to see Hippolyta actually have the conversation. the conversation, knowing that, you know, this is, she hasn't seen him in a long time. Like there was just a different understanding. She, she had a different understanding of time. She had a different understanding of who she was. And so she had no fear in having the conversation that she needed to have, even though it was difficult, even after, you know, he, he died and, you know, there was just no fear that there was never she was never going to see him again or she should just be quiet and enjoy the moment like she had the courage to have that that conversation and i feel like hopefully that is something that we can all take away you know that there is if not this person you know perhaps someone else but at least we will be able to name ourselves and to stop shrinking for and, and stop having that expectation of ourselves to shrink and having the expectation of other black women to shrink. Cause I know that this is a kind of a community situation, like patriarchy operates in community, you know, and it's uh, uh, internalized patriarchy can have mostly women socializing other women on how to behave and shaming other women for not behaving in the ways that patriarchy says that women should behave. And so I do hope that this, you know, was not just liberating for Hippolyta. Um, I love that, uh, that story about your mom, that experience that you all had together and that you got to witness that. And I hope that so many other people had that experience as well, because it really was a powerful episode. Shout out to Shannon Houston for writing that. Shout out. Um, I'm on record. I think uh, while I definitely love the Hippolyta episode and I found it very powerful. I think my favorite episode of the series so far was episode four. Um, you know, the end got a little dicey, but not everything you love has to be perfect. And so episode four for me was just such a callback to my childhood, um, watching, you know, the Goonies and watching Indiana Jones and watching all of these white kids <laughs> And white people go on these adventures to other countries and deal with, you know, pirates and 
booby traps. Um, and so episode four was such a callback to all of that. And then it was great for us to talk to Victoria Mahoney, the director of that episode, who basically said the same thing. Like she just loves these action adventure movies and having action adventure movies like those that center black people are just fun because it's not something that we usually get to see. Um, so that was that was definitely, I think, my favorite episode, although seven is a close second and um three was just really scary for me <laughs> so I can't I can't put that as a fave it's like I've, I've re-watched it a bunch of times for this podcast um and the same with episode eight um also a very scary and more horror themed episode like those two probably not gonna be re-watching those if I if I go on a rewatch of the show again but I think I will definitely go back to episode four um and enjoy all of the the like fun and the adventure of it all I loved episode four I did too I mean yeah right up right on up to the end of there um I I really did I loved episode four as well and it was so great to talk to Victoria Mahoney and Anjanu Ellis um when for episode seven that was that was really great to get her perspective as well. Um, so shout out to her for also coming on the show and and breaking down what that episode was like. Yes, y'all already know episode three was my favorite episode. And just being in this space of sadness because of the pandemic, because the pandemic is killing Black people, you know, part, in particular, um, and Black children now that we've seen some, um, a new study that came out that said that the majority of children that are dying from COVID are Black and Brown um, you know, and just feeling like everything was against us and like have police brutality onto like, not even in a pandemic, can we get a break? And feeling like Lovecraft Country, the show, this episode three gave us, you know, some tools that we could use, that we could dig into our spirituality, the spirituality of our ancestors. And I think that's kind of the common thread throughout, right? Like even in this episode, we see that our ancestors are still so powerful. They're still with us, even if they have passed on, even if it's been so long since we've seen them, even if we've never met them, they are with us and that there is a space, there is a plane that we can connect with them and we can derive power from that. We can fight back against all of our enemies um, if we're, if we are, are, honoring our ancestors and remembering their sacrifices and, you know, trying to behave in a way that would, you know, bring honor to the sacrifices that they did make for us. So I think there is a lot in the show to be proud of. I mean, especially, you know, for Misha Green as a showrunner and creator um, for what she was able to do as far as bringing black women to the center. Cause that the book Lovecraft country definitely did not have black women necessarily at the center. Um, it was more about the men and so, you know, and changing Diana to a girl from Horace in the book, um, that character was a boy, um, allowing Black women and girls to play a role in genre that we never get to see. We never get to see Black women in space. Uh, we never get to see, you know, Black girls go on adventures and Hopefully, yeah, hopefully season two, there's some exciting and enjoyable adventures um, and maybe perhaps Diana getting back to who she was. I mean, I don't know if you can ever go back after all the trauma that she's been through, but, you know. Or after killing someone. At least. Right, right. I just. Mm, mm, mm. Therapy. She'll, she'll go through some therapy. In the 50s? She'll, she'll have lots of therapy. I mean. I mean, her mom is infinite universes, infinite time. Yeah, she can take, Hippolyta can take her through the time portal and get some therapy. We're going to 2020. We're going to find Dr. Imani. Hello, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I want them to, if they're going to time travel, because again, I I think when you introduce time travel, you're, you're introducing problems just automatically. You're going to have, there's just so much stuff that you have to clean up because Hippolyta definitely was not dancing on stage with Josephine Baker. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. So she changed that. She changed that part of history, you know? So obviously there is a space where you can go and you can change history and it's going to be fine. 
So I do hope that, you know, they explore that, like what they can actually change and using that, using the power that Hippolyta has unlocked and all the powers in the multiverses to go and and do some of that and make some make some positive changes um, in history. And maybe they could prevent Dee from doing all the stuff that happened to her as well. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I think I want to, like I mentioned earlier, um, before we got on to chat, I think I want to talk about something fun. Like, who is your MVP of the season? We have a lot of characters and we've been with them throughout this whole journey through Lovecraft Country. Um, but who is your favorite? We'll start with Demetria. Hippolyta, hands down. Yeah. Because first episode, like, you didn't know, like, I mean, is, is, is her character any more than just George's wife? Um, because of the actress, I was like, you don't bring her in just to, like, you know, make her a minor character. But then you kill off George, um, Courtney B. Vance. So I'm just like, well, where is this going? Um, what role is she going to play? Um, and once she got going, I was like, oh, yes, I'm here for the whole ride. I love her as an actress in general. Um, but just that episode, I think episode eight was astounding for me. Like I, I was moved and I'm rarely moved by anything these days. Um, but yeah, Hippolyta, hands down. Brooke, who's your MVP? I'm going to have to go with Hippolyta, too, because she was, you know, I think <laughs> being able to disconnect yourself from, I guess, a family unit, because that, that we are kind of socialized as Black women to be concerned about community and all that to the expense of ourselves. And so for her to be able to say, like, yeah, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I have responsibilities, but also I have a responsibility to myself and I need to go and I need to get some healing and here's the path that I'm going to take to get the healing that I need so that I can come back and be of use to my community um, and of use to myself and happy with myself and my choices. Um, so yeah, for sure. I think that, that, that she has, I think the best arc in the show, as far as like character development um, and as far as, you know, someone who was able to grow and improve every episode that she was centered in i don't know that everybody improved which is not you know it's not a requirement of a character arc but you know just that you go from being one kind of person to another kind of person and you know she definitely had the most ethereal arc of anyone on the show yeah uh, i don't want to clean sweep for hippolyta so now i gotta flip the mvp most villainous person no that's christina but um (laughs) I don't know. I'm I'm torn. I think we are set up to want Letty to be our MVP. And Letty is probably the most valuable person um, among all of these people just because she is put in all of these situations and she saves the day like time and time again. Consistent. She's clutch. Yeah, yeah. she saves yeah. the day time and time again. Even though she can't save Tick's life, she ends up saving, you know, the Freeman clan. And we'll see in season two, potentially black people at large if we set up these black magic schools across the country. Um, but I think Letty um, and Journey Smollett in general did an amazing job of acting um she killed every scene she looked really great um i think as a cast this was a really really strong cast in general um Mm -hmm. and even if you know some of the things story-wise may not have come together in a way that we have liked like the cast acted their asses off right like they they did the damn thing and so I really disliked Ruby as a character, but that's only because Wemi Masaka um, is a fabulous actress, right? Like, I really was upset at Matros in episode four for burning the book and killing Yahima, but that's only because Michael K. Williams is just Michael K. Williams, like, phenomenal in everything he he touches. And Jonathan Majors and all of his facial (laughs) acting and... (laughs) All the emotions that just all over his face um, without even having to say anything. Like, I think that's the biggest success of the show is that they were just able to pull such an amazing cast of people. And 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 all of the people, all of them like brought it like nobody was kind of just the air. Yeah. No, Jonathan Majors, I think the first episode was the first episode, second episode when Uncle George died. And I was like, oh, that's his Emmy right there. 
his faces, like that whole, like all that reaction yes. just on his face when he was looking in the car. He didn't even say anything at first. And I was like, oh, you give that man an Emmy. Give that man an Emmy right now. Right now. Yeah. And that, yeah, I bawled my eyes out. That's what I, like those first five episodes, because again, Press got the first five episodes before the show started. I bawled my eyes out through every single one of those episodes. And I felt like that was so much a testament to the cast and how they connected so closely to the material and delivered it in a way that felt like this mm-hmm. is real. Like, I don't even know Jonathan Majors outside of Tick. Like, Jonathan is Tick. Uh, Journey is Letty. Like, it was just, I mean, we've seen Michael K. Williams and so much stuff. We watched Journey Smollett grow up and st- it was just like, you know, you're owning these characters. You are these characters. Like, that was that was just, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal casting. Shout out to the casting director. They need a raise. Whatever you paid them, double it, double it. Double it, double it. Before we let you go, Demetria, did you have any last thoughts that maybe you wanted to share on Lovecraft um, about the season or this episode in general? I mean, I I loved Lovecraft. Um, I got this really great press box like before the show came out. And I was like, this is so sweet that they've sent this to me. But like, I don't do sci-fi and I don't do horror. So they probably just wasted a box. I had no intentions of watching this show. Because the box was so good, I was like, all right, I'll watch one episode. And I was hooked. So as a kid who grew up watching, um, like you said, The Goonies was one of my favorite films as a kid. Um, I loved Indiana Jones. I loved, like, as like a little kid, like watching The Jetsons. There was no black people, you know? And I guess that's probably one of the reasons that I sort of fell away from the genre is, like, I never see myself in these things. So to see, just to see black folks doing, like, curious, being curious, um, magic, um, being comfortable with ghosts and being like, hey, they're not ghosts, they're their ancestors, they're actually friendly. Like, oh, I never thought of them that way. Um, I loved it. Like, it appealed to the kid in me. Um, and I think that's probably why, I mean, not that it, because, also because it's a really well-written show, but I also think, like, that's part of the reason that so many people are tuning in is it's tapping into every little black kid who, like, watched sci-fi and adventure and then, you know, kind of drifted away because they were like, well, the black people get killed off first and, or the, if we're in it, if we're not in it, then it's like we're, we're erasure. So, you know, we don't exist. But I feel like it taps into wanting to be seen and they're doing a really great job with it. Demetria, we really want to thank you for okay. joining us for the 10th and final episode of season one of Lovecraft Country to break it down, to talk about it, to share our feelings and our thoughts. Um, thank you for having me. Like I mentioned, you can listen to Demetria weekly on the Ratchet and Respectable podcast because those are things that I think describe her perfectly and her point of view. She is great. And we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much once again to our guest, Demetria L. Lucas. You can follow her on Instagram at Demetria L. Lucas. And also, again, listen to her every single week on the Ratchet and Respectable podcast brooke before we sign off for this episode was there anything else you wanted to add yeah so i you know as a critic um i am very very interested in the conversation about criticism because it is a profession and it is an art into itself and it can have such powerful results it's always interesting to me to see people getting upset Um, when there is criticism of something that they really love, because, you know, if it's not disrespectful, I think that there is so much power in critique. Um, I know that from pieces that I've written, I've had screenwriters DM me and say, wow, your piece made me think about Black trauma in a different way. And now when I'm putting this in my work, I'm going to have to think about how I want my audience to feel. Um, And I need to be cognizant of that in how I shoot it, how I write it, all those kinds of things. And I'm, I'm going to be super aware. And I was really, really excited actually to see Misha Green, the creator and the showrunner of Lovecraft Country responding to critique. So shout out to young Alice um, on Twitter. She asked Misha Green on October 12th, if you're still answering questions, I would still love to hear an explanation from you on why you chose to pre- to portray Yahima the way y'all did. So, of course, as you know, in episode four, the indigenous two-spirit character Yahima was brutally murdered by Montrose at the end of that episode. 
Um, and there was a lot of backlash because of the violence that um, trans people face, the the deaths of indigenous trans people as well. Um, you know, the the trope of killing your your, your queer characters off. Um, and so Misha actually responded to this on Twitter. She said, I wanted to show the uncomfortable truth that oppressed folks can also be oppressors, but I didn't examine or unpack the moment portrayal of Yahima as thoroughly as I should have. It's a story point worth making, but I failed in the way I chose to make it. And I found that really, really interesting because this just doesn't really happen that often, Um, particularly for Black creatives. There's so little space for Black creatives to fail. I think there's, that's the feeling, that's the atmosphere. And so not only are you not supposed to critique a Black artist, um, because there's so few of us who are able to actually succeed in getting something on the screen. But as a Black creative, like, why would you admit to a failure? Because then maybe that'll hamper your chances. And so I really was inspired and encouraged by Misha acknowledging this and acknowledging it as a failure. I appreciated it um, because it just shows, for one, that as creatives, we're always growing, we're always learning, like the best creatives to me. Um, are always growing, always learning. And they understand that there is a conversation that's happening and that it's not a monologue. When you put out art, it's not just you speaking. Like the audience does get to speak back. And it's fantastic when there is an enthusiastic audience that loves everything that you do. That's always great and affirming too, because it means like, yes, you're hitting on something, you're doing something that you intended and set out to do. But there's also a group of people who can say, hey, what about me? Like, I felt like when you did this, I was left out of that situation. And considering how marginalized trans people are and two-spirit people are and indigenous people are, like, I'm very, very appreciative that she listened to that feedback and, and incorporated that. And so I actually had the benefit of doing an interview with Misha. She wasn't able to come on the podcast, um, but I was able to do an interview that will be out on Shondaland.com. And I did, I talked to her about responding to criticism and what the role critique played in getting her to the point where she could acknowledge that she could have done things in a different way. And so um, just a little summary of what she said. Um, She said that criticism is an important part of making art. Um, And she always wants to be growing and she never wants to be in stasis. Um, She took the criticism in and, you know, she acknowledged that there was a failure. Um, And so she also mentioned how strange and sad it was that, you know, it's so few and far between to have a creative who will say like, yeah, I messed up, Um, you know, because she thinks that it is important as artists who want to grow um, to think about that and to think about, you know, how, their ideas are actually impacting people. So regardless of intention, you know, there's always an impact. Um, And so, you know, sometimes your intention can mitigate the impact, but it's not everything. The the centering should happen around how this is impacting people and how it kind of plays into harms that are already existing and being perpetuated by the art that we create. Um, So I was really appreciated are really appreciative of the way that she responded to that and, and just her respect for criticism as an art form and as a, and the role that it plays in helping creatives to create the art that they create. So she did mention that, you know, she wanted to address everything right away. She didn't want to wait five years later. Um, and she acknowledged that the show was in conversation with everyone who was watching. And that's a showrunner. That's a creative that's a an artist that like I can respect and get behind because yeah, and we're not always going to get it right. We're not always going to do everything the way that we would have liked to have done it with you know 2020 vision. Um, and so she did also address some ways that she's going to avoid these pitfalls in the future. So definitely check that out on Shondaland.com on Tuesday. And just shout out to Misha for being open to hearing this kind of feedback. Um, so, you know, you, you'll see, and I hope the audience can kind of get along with that message as well. Like you don't have to love every single thing about something that you love in order to be a fan of it. I really appreciated Demetria saying that too. And I really appreciate Misha understanding that the critique is coming from a 
place of love and that that is a valid position to be in. And that is something that is helpful to creatives and is not dissing them or trying to hurt their careers or any of those other kinds of like fear-based things that, that people can kind of come to as a conclusion of what criticism is. Indeed. Um, well, we have come to the end of Lovecraft Country season one. We are heading out of Lovecraft Country. We're leaving Arden behind. But let's talk a little bit about what is coming up on Black Girl Watching next. We are going to be taking a little break because doing this podcast while also having 50 loving other jobs on the side is work. And so we're going to take a little bit of time off, but we will be returning on November 23rd with a new episode. We're going to be taking a slight detour and doing some themed episodes. And we we are open to your feedback and your suggestions about what we're going to be talking about. Maybe some of your favorites. So here we go. One episode we're doing is going to be about Black love and movies that deal with Black love, movies that we like, um, maybe movies that you like. Send us your suggestion for your favorite Black love-themed movies. We're also going to be doing, since the end of November is Thanksgiving um, and leading into the Christmas season and other holiday season, we are going to be doing our favorite Black holiday movies. So if you have a favorite Black holiday movie, shoot us a tweet, let us know why you love it. Maybe we'll talk about it on the show. And at the end of the year, we're going to be doing our 2020 favorites. So one episode will be dedicated to our favorite TV shows. Another episode will be dedicated to our favorite films of 2020. Um, So we really have enjoyed having these conversations and being in conversation with you. Um, If you have enjoyed the podcast, be sure to leave us a five-star review and say some nice words if you want to. Um, we really appreciate all of the people who have done that already. Brooke, anything else? Um, I think that that, I don't know if you want to put this part in or not, but I do want to say one last thing about critique. I know some people were, you know, some people felt pretty passionately about our, um, our about our critiques um, and thought maybe they were too harsh and that we were putting kind of like, uh, you know, it's 2020 sensibilities on a 1950s show and it has to be realistic. And to that, I just want to say there were no monsters coming out of the ground in the 1950s. So there's some space, there's some space to be inventive and we should always, you know, consider, um, like Misha said, you know, how we can get the same messages across and be cognizant of our audience who is watching this in 2020 and how they might react and how they might feel and how we want them to feel. We're going to take that note as creatives ourselves and try to do um, create the best podcast experience that we can have for you all as well. Indeed. Come back, see us back here November 23rd, and we will probably be kicking off with holiday movies, right? First out the gate. Holiday movies. Yes. Cause that's going to be, that's Thanksgiving week. So we're going to be, you know, it might be a time where we're unable to see family and friends um, because of the pandemic. Um, so shout out to everybody that's being safe and staying in their houses. Um, so we'll try to make something that is, feels a little bit like family and, and home, hopefully. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm curious to know what's on your holiday list. I'm going to make my own list and we're going to talk about it on November 23rd. In the interim, if you have any comments, if you want to send us suggestions for holiday films or talk about your favorite holiday films, and maybe we'll share some of your your memories um, on the November 23rd show, send us a tweet at BLKGRL watching. Um, hit us up on Instagram at Black Girl Watching, or if you want to be old school, I don't think it's old school, but or if you want to make sure we get your exact comment correctly, you can shoot us an email at blackgirlwatching at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for riding with us throughout Lovecraft Country. This has been a journey and we've had a good time. Yes, we've had a wonderful time. And we'll see you back November 23rd. Yes, indeed. I'm Brittany Danielle. I'm Brooke Obie. Black Girls Out.